All right. You have to bear with me. I, I normally use a lapel. I'm, I'm, I, it's been a long time since back in my boy band days that I used a, an earpiece. So um, I'll let you decide which band that was. <laughs> anyway, like, uh, like Nate said, my name's Patrick. I'm a pastor of a local church out by Lake Goodwin. Uh, it's a little bit different. I'm gonna, I have a little bit of an ADHD, so as cars drive by, I might get distracted. At my church, we're in the woods, so we're right by the lake, so I don't get cars driving by to distract me. But it's beautiful. We get to look out on Lake Goodwin at the end of service, and uh, we get to enjoy that. Uh, I'm very excited to be here this morning, uh, mainly because it gives one of my guys an opportunity to preach at my church. But then it's also good to see some, some faces that I uh, haven't seen in a while, and just to see a lot of new faces, and just to see the growth in this church and, and what God's been doing here. So this morning, uh, I want to just dive right into the Word of God, because we got a lot to cover. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a normal hour and a half preacher. You guys good for that? All right, so let us pray, and then we'll dive into God's Word. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you first and foremost that you are God. We thank you that you are sovereign over all of your creation. We thank you that you've given us your Word fully inspired by the Holy Spirit. We thank you that it is the main resource we have to gain wisdom and insight to live our life of faith, to proclaim the gospel which you have given us as a mission for this time in this church age till you return. And so, Lord, I pray that you would convict us if we need convicting, encourage us if we need encouragement, and above all, Lord, that you would be glorified this morning by the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word. In your precious name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, I'm pretty sure we could find you one. Um, but Hebrews chapter 10, uh, when I told Derek I was going to preach Hebrews chapter 10 verses 1 through uh, 25, he said, that's ambitious. And the reason that's ambitious is because there's a lot here. We could spend an entire series just going through Hebrews chapter 10 and the deep, rich theology that, that is there. We're going to we're going to go through some of that, but I wanted to encourage you. A lot of times uh, when pastors fill in, uh, the pastor says, hey, preach, preach on this because they need to hear it and they, they're tired of hearing it from me. Or they say, just encourage them. And so this morning, I just want to be an encouragement to you. I want to be, let the word of God be an encouragement. Uh, there's passages in scripture that we should just be able to read and then just close the book, say amen, and everybody just go to lunch. Um, so I'm going to let the word speak for itself a lot. And uh, hopefully you guys are encouraged by that. Before we start off in Hebrews chapter 10, we need to go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Because that's going to set the stage, really, for what Hebrews chapter 10 talks about. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is where the author of Hebrews is proclaiming and showing that Jesus Christ is the once for all sacrifice. And, we're, and chapter 10 dives into that more deeply. The time of this letter that Hebrews was written, the church was experiencing many trials and persecutions. Uh, most date the writing of this letter around 67 or 69 AD, which would put it right before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The author, who is unknown, seems to want to encourage those who have faith in Jesus 
to live out that faith and to allow that faith to strengthen them in times of struggle, to build up their reliance of what the Old Testament says about the person and work of Jesus. And there are many quotations and references of the Old Testament in this passage and allusions back to the Old Testament. And no matter what the, no matter what the unknown author is, no matter who he is, we know that the author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit and God himself. We know that Jesus is the Word. And so what I want to encourage you with is that the encouragement that we get from this passage of our faith in Jesus is coming directly from Jesus himself, his person, his work, and his ministry of the word. In our text today, the writing will seem, if you look at the book of Hebrews as a whole, it'll transition at the beginning from what seems like essays, theological essays, to Jesus um, talking about Jesus to more sermon-like uh, writing and proclamation and application of the supremacy of Jesus in all things. Again, the purpose uh, seems to be to lift those up in faith who seem to be discouraged by the sin in their own lives, the world around them, and the waiting for the return of Jesus. And I would just ask you this morning, does that sound familiar? Can we identify with people that, of faith that might be discouraged with the sin in our own lives and the world around us? and the waiting return for Jesus? I think we can. So let us read. Uh, we'll start off uh, chapter 10, starting in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You see, what was being described here is the law, is the sacrificial system. And it was never meant to be the fullness or the substance of God's plan of redemption and restoration for his people. It was always a shadow, an echo. It was always a placeholder for an image that was to come. And it's really interesting. If you, if you have a pen, underline the word shadow there because the shadow gives us an outline or a silhouette of the figure that casts it. No matter what Peter Pan tells us, you can't take hold of a shadow because it has no substance. I don't know if many of you are Star Trek fans. Me and my wife, we just finished watching the Next Generation series. And there's this episode where Jordy uh, gets all like blue veiny and stuff, alieny, and nobody can see him. You have to have a special light to see him, but you can, you can see the shadow, and that's how they find out what's going on is by the shadow. But the shadow is again just that; it's a shadow. You can't engage with the shadow. The real thing is the best thing about things is their substance. A shadow can never satisfy. Now, one of the things that I like to do is I like to smoke meat. I, I, I really like to smoke meat. And I could show you up here. I can pull out my phone, and I could show you pictures of meat that I smoke because I take pictures of all the meat that I smoke. I'm that guy. And you could salivate over those pictures. You could say, oh, man, that's making me hungry. But the picture is never going to satisfy you. If you want to be satisfied with the meat that I smoke, you have to, well, you have to come and eat it, right? You have to take hold of it. You have to get it all over your fingers, and it's good. See, but that's the, that's the same thing with the law. It, no matter what, 
it, it, it points to the good things. It points to the idea of being fully reconciled with God. It, it points to the idea of being our sins being covered and taken away. But the fullness of it, the substance of it is Jesus. The ultimate ineffectiveness and true purpose of the law is shown in its repetition year after year. Every year they had to do this, this sacrificial atonement to cover the sins of the nation for the previous year. If the sacrifices made under the old covenant sacrificial system were the full substance of God's redemptive plan, then there wouldn't have to have been need for them at least to do more than once. And that's what the author of Hebrews is pointing out. He's saying, if you're going to hold on to the law, if you're going to hold on to the legalism of the law, rather than your faith in Jesus, it's worthless. It's, it's but a shadow of, of what is actually there, the substance of God, the full substance of God's redemptive plan. However, the true purpose of the law is pointed out here. It was to remind the people of sin and their reliance on God to cover their sins. You see, that's the whole purpose of, of the law of God. It was never to save people. The nation of Israel was never expected to perfectly obey God's law, and we know that they didn't. We are, are, aren't expected to perfectly obey God's law. We can't. None of us can. It was always pointing to Jesus being the one who could fulfill God's law fully. And we say that the atonement covers because that's exactly what the word atonement, kofar, which literally means to cover, did. That's exactly what it is. If you turn to Romans, turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Says this, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, it was just to give us knowledge. Give us knowledge of the fact that we needed our sins covered. We needed our sins washed away. But the idea of covering sin was established at the time sin entered the world. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3. There's going to be a little bit of a sword drill this morning, so just prepare you. So Genesis chapter 3. What do we have in Genesis chapter 3? We have the fall of man. We have sin entering the world. Starting in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That's man trying to cover their own sin. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman, it's the woman who you gave 
to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and in between your offspring and her offspring. You shall, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I surely will multiply your chain and pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles you shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. In verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Their sin needed to be covered. And they tried to cover their own sin. They tried to do it on their own. They sewed fig leaves together, which aren't that strong, which break easily, which tear easily. But what did God do? God sacrificed the animals. He shed the blood to make them skins, to make them clothes, to cover their guilt and their shame and their nakedness. From the beginning, God made a plan for Jesus to redeem his people, that he would be the other that would come and crush the head of the serpent, that he would be the one to establish victory. You see, the substance of the shadow, the good things ultimately come in Jesus. Let's continue on. Verse 5 of chapter 10 of Hebrews. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, which these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in an order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. 
See, Jesus entered into human history for a purpose. He entered into human history to be the once-for-all sacrifice. He came in to human history to do the will of the Father. And what was the will of the Father for Jesus? Well, first it was to seek and save the lost. It was to seek out those who were lost, the lost sheep, and to save them. He came to do the will of the Father, which was to become flesh so that he could live a sinless life, something that we could not do because we were born in sin. We have the sin of Adam and Eve. It was passed on to us. We can't live a sinless life. Only Jesus could. He came to do the Father's will, which was to die the sacrificial death required to satisfy the wrath of the perfect and holy God towards sin. You see, it's the wrath of God that we should receive. It was the punishment of our sin that we should receive. But it is Jesus who bore that punishment for us. He is Jesus who bore that sacrifice for us. When we take communion later, that's exactly what we're remembering. We're not making sacrifices over and over again when we take communion because we know from Scripture that's ridiculous to do. We can't do it. It makes no sense to do it. What makes sense is to honor and worship and praise the one who did, which is Jesus Christ. Let us look at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By Oh, that's Ephesians. It's still good. It's still good. All right. Galatians 2, starting in verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, that's more in line with what we're talking about. I said to Caiaphas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Jews to live like, the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that what a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We know that in and of ourselves, we cannot bring forth any sort of favor or merit of God. Jesus paid this once for all sacrifice to establish the new covenant in which we, there is no longer a covering of sin, but a washing away of sin. It is once for all, and it is finished. You know, the difference between the priests is they had to always stand and do it every time. Jesus, what does he do? After he does his sacrificial work, after he tells the church what their mission is going to be, he rises to heaven and he sits down at the right hand of God. He sits. It's finished. It's like when I get home, you have until I sit and take off my shoes before nothing else happens. I'm, I'm kidding. But really, if I can get my shoes off, there's a less likelihood of stuff happening because I'm done for the day. Jesus, he paid the once for all sacrifice. He sat down at the right hand of God. He claimed that it was finished. So the difference between Jesus and the priest is that Jesus sits and legalism is on the hamster wheel that is always going, trying to run a race that they will never finish. Our position in Christ is perfected. 
is perfected. It says that we, we were made perfect in the sacrifice of Christ. That we are perfected. Who's perfected? All those who are sanctified. All those who are on that life trajectory of sanctification. So in the eyes of God, we are perfect in Christ, just as we sang. In Christ, our life this side of glory is to have a trajectory of sanctification. Knowing full well this side of glory, we will struggle with sin. But when we are fully restored in heaven, when we are fully restored in Jesus' return, that we will be perfect and holy and glorified. Spurgeon said, What a glorious word. Those for whom Christ has died were perfected by his death. It does not mean that he made them perfect in character so that they are no longer sinners, but that he made those from whom he died perfectly free from the guilt of sin. When Christ took their sins upon himself, sin remained no longer upon them, for it could not be in two places at one and the same time. It's that encouragement to know that in the eyes of God, God sees Christ. He doesn't see my sin, my struggle, my shame, my guilt. Because he sees the person and work of Christ. But it's not just Jesus that entered the world. Then we have the Holy Spirit, the witness that was given. Jesus gave us a comforter and a witness to his covenant in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not just some afterthought of the Christian trinity. The Holy Spirit is God indwelling in those who have put their faith in the person and work of Jesus. You say, well, Patrick, does that mean God is walking with me all the time? Yes. Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah. Some of us are thinking, man, that's rough. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's joyous. And even in the times where we think it's rough because we're sinning or we, you know, we're dragging God with us to our debauchery, our debauchery, it, the joy is that he's there, ready to forgive, ready to provide grace, ready to provide mercy. And when we feel alone or we feel distant, he's there to provide comfort and joy and hope. You see, then it says that they will write the word of God upon our hearts and our minds. The word of God becomes the life-sustaining and wisdom-giving fountain that flows into our minds and hearts. The word of God becomes paramount in those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ because that's where we learn what it means to be sanctified. That's what it means. That's where we learn what it means to have fellowship with other believers and how to engage the world with the gospel of truth. And then we are reminded that he will remember no more the sin and action, the sin and the actions from our sins. What does he say? There is forgiveness. There is no more sacrifice needed. Turn to 1 John chapter 1. First John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest that we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. 
that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship him with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You see, if we hold on to our faith and the truth that God forgives us of our sin, we have to acknowledge that we have sin that needs forgiveness. We have sin that we need to confess. This morning, it is great to have a church that gathers together and confesses together their sin before a just and perfect and holy God. And not just live in that moment of, of sin confession, but to then rely on the hope that Jesus Christ provide that for, provides that forgiveness and the truth that he provides that once for all sacrifice. Let's continue on. Verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have all confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, with full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here we are getting into the application part. And what we see is that there is a confidence that we have in going into the holy places. The holy places there is the presence of God. We get to go confidently in the presence of God because of the holiness of Jesus that is given to us by our faith in him. You see, on the day of atonement, the high priest entered the holy place of all, with all fear and trembling. But we can enter the, holiness, uh, uh, the, the holy places with boldness. We can have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. If we entered as the Old Testament high priest did with the blood of animals, we wouldn't have any boldness. But with the blood of Jesus providing a new and living way, he has consecrated for us, we really can come into the presence of God with confidence. We can, we can be at the feet of God with confidence. But what does that confidence give us? What does that make us do? You see, it makes us realize that we cannot come before God with our own works, thinking that we will merit his favor. We can't come to him with our filthy rags or, or our empty hands. We can't, we can't do enough. We can't be enough. It has to be by Jesus. We rely on the grace we have received by faith. 
we won't, I got a list of scripture here I'm going to go through really quick so we won't sword drill it. But Romans 3.28 says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, that no one is just, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 4.5, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Galatians 2.16 again, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Philippians 3.8-11, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Oh, that's so good. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. We'll plug for baptism. And that by means possible may attain the resurrection from the dead. And that's what we celebrate when we do baptism. That we are lowered into the water. We are buried in the likeness of his death. And when we come out of the water, we are raised in the likeness of his resurrection. And what are we, what are we raised to? We're raised to life. We're raised to live a life that is full of faith. In the full assurance of the person and work of Jesus Christ actually accomplished what he said it would accomplish. Sometimes we walk through this life and we don't live like that. We don't believe like that. Sometimes we are so afraid of the world. Sometimes we are so afraid of what's going on around us. Sometimes we're so afraid of our own shadow that we don't live in the full substance of the cross of Jesus. And we struggle and we fight and we don't feed our faith. Let's continue on. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we should walk in them. That's action. That's, that's something to do. How many of your kids tell you that they're bored? Point them to this. Say, you got walking to do. You shouldn't be bored. So then it leads us to the question, ultimately, okay, Christ paid for the once or all sacrifice. We have boldness and confidence to go into the presence of God. We have the full assurance of faith. So what do we do with it? How do we live like we actually have faith? Well, Scripture tells us. Starts off by telling, saying, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. Let us go where God wants us to go. Let us be what God wants us to be. Let us seek his word to find his will so that we can be in the presence of God. But we draw near to God with what? A true heart. A true heart is, is described here as one with the word of God written on it. How often are we writing the word of God on our hearts? Are we doing it daily? Are you just coming on Sunday and waiting for that, that dose you get on Sunday? It should be the word written on our heart 
that we should draw near to God with full assurance. And that full assurance is described as the confidence and the knowledge that he is supreme over all things. No matter the trials and the struggles that the people that this letter received were going through, no matter the trials and the struggles that you are going through now, whether it be political, social, medical, whatever it is, God is supreme over all things. And his grace is sufficient. And your faith will hold you firm. If we draw near to God, we get a heart of flesh. We get a heart of flesh. We have a heart that has been sprinkled clean from the evil conscience of our bodies and washed with pure water. One that has been washed clean, a heart with a new conscience led by the word and will of God. Where we substitute our desires for the desires of God. Because they are good. So not only are we to, in light of this, in the full assurance of our faith and living like we have faith, draw near to God. If we're going to live like we have faith, we're going to hold fast. It says, let us hold fast. Well, what are we supposed to hold fast to? We're supposed to hold fast to the confession of hope. When the struggles come, we confess the faith that we have in Christ and the hope of his coming glory. When the struggles come in your life, when the storms come and the trials come and the difficult situations come and the relational conflict comes, what are you holding fast to? Your own ability to solve your own problems? Your own wisdom to solve your own problems? Or are we turning to the one that gives us hope? Right now, the world would tell you there's not a lot to hope for. And you're right. In and of this world, there's not a lot to hope for. But in Jesus, there's a whole lot to hope for. There's glory to hope for. And I don't know about you, but I'm very excited. As beautiful as it is right now, I would rather see the glory of God. I would rather be Moses tan than suntan. I want to see the full Shekinah glory of God and not die. So we're supposed to hold fast to that confession of hope. We're to hold fast to, to why we believe what we believe. And then we're to hold fast to the promises of God. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And they are new every morning because great is your faithfulness. We need those mercies new each morning. Why? Because I got a whole bunch of sin that I struggle with, that I'm tempted with. I got trials. I got parent parenthood. You don't think parenthood causes you to rest in the hope and the glory of Jesus Christ? It does. And I only have one. I pray for my friends who have more than one. Every day. I'm like, good. I don't know how you do it. Saints, literally. So we hold fast to the confession of hope. We hold fast to the promises of God. And what does it mean to hold fast? Hold and don't let go. Hold like your life depends on it. Hold like the line, like you're climbing a mountain and the line snapped and you're holding on to that rock face for dear life. But then it says, let us do something else to live life like we actually have faith. It says, let us consider what? How to stir one another up. So let's, let's think about that. 
let us consider others. That's counterintuitive to the world, isn't it? The world says you don't have to consider others. You just got to consider yourself. Why? Because if you consider yourself, you get more likes, you get more shares, you get more encouragement, you get more attaboys, you get more whatever the world has to offer, right? Consider others. So how are we going to consider others? We stir up one another to good love and good works. Now, what's interesting is, you know, sometimes we'll read something, we're like, oh, I think I know what that means. But then we go find out what the author meant there, and it breaks you. To stir one another up isn't just a, hey, buddy, come on. It's literally a provocation which literally jabs or cuts someone so they must respond. It's like going after the 99, right? Or going after the one and leaving the 99. It is, it is saying, you are going in a way you shouldn't go. You're not living as if you actually have the faith that resides in you. And so I'm going to challenge you. I may rebuke you. It may even cut a little but it's for your good. But we do that to what? We, we, we provoke, we stir up, we encourage, we sometimes chase down and bring back those to what? To love. And the love that's described here is that agape love, that good God love, not that man love that we, we, we also enjoy, but that agape love, the love of God. We're to Stir one another up to the love of God. And what does the love of God do? A great in many things. It proclaims the gospel of Jesus. It causes us to serve one another rather than just serve ourselves. And then that leads to stirring one another up to good works. And the good works here are those that are honorable and worthy to glorify God. So it's not just any old thing. It's works that are to praise and point to Jesus, praise and point to God. These are works that motivate and inspire those around us to do the same, to join us on mission, to, to live life like they have faith. The next thing, we're not to forsake the meeting as some are in the habit. The, the, the word in uh, the passage uh, in the ESV says, do not neglect to meet together. Um, the actual word is, is more stronger. It, it, it says not forsake. And that forsaking is the same forsaking when Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This thing. I'm about to forsake this earpiece. <laughs> um, but it's that, seriously. All right. All right, we good? All right. It's that same forsaking. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, when we neglect the gathering of God's people, when we neglect the gathering, we are forsaking what God doesn't want us to forsake. We are, we are abandoning that which we are, should be part of. You see, the church is a family. See, this church is a family in amongst yourselves, and my church is a family in amongst ourselves, but then we're also kind of like distant family. We're like cousins. And we go visit from time to time, and, and maybe we'll get together and we'll do something. We'll have a party or something. That'd be fun. But the idea is that we shouldn't neglect that. We shouldn't forsake the abandon or abandon the gathering of God's people. 
One, because how are we to stir one another up if we're not seeing one another? You think, well, if I, you know, my Christian walk is just me and Jesus, and we just kind of go, and every once in a while I'll show up to church so I can get my, you know, my, my Excel spreadsheet checkoff list done. But the reality is, is how, how am I to be known by people, and how are people going to know me if I don't show up? How can I serve others if I don't show up? And how can I humble myself and, and allow people to serve me and my need if I don't show up? You see, we have become really proficient at neglecting the gathering for the idols of busyness and self-fulfillment. Let me, let me repeat that. We have become really proficient at neglecting the gathering for the idols of busyness and self-fulfillment. And that's the only negative thing that we see here is the not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some. But rather than doing neglecting and forsaking and abandoning and not gathering, but what should we do? Encourage one another. The encouragement means that this word encourage has a long list of definitions, and I want to go through them because I think it will be an encouragement for us. To encourage one another means to call for or to call to, to reach out. The phone works both ways. Are you the person that always calls people to offer encouragement but never gets called yourself? Don't raise your hand because I, I want you to stay humble. Are you somebody that never calls anybody to offer a word of encouragement or maybe ask, hey, how can I pray for you? Or, hey, do you need meals? Oh, do you need a ride to church? To call out to, to reach out. Also, it means to summon or invite. The sense is, is that there's going to be a personal connection. There's going to be a physical presence. Encouragement happens best in the physical presence. I mean, I could call you, but you're not going to see my face. You're not going to see the concern on my face or the heart that I have for you. You're not going to be able to read my paralanguage, all the things I say without saying things. We are to encourage people both by reaching out and both by being in presence. The encouragement here means also to beseech or beg, which it means that we are to plead with those. Part of encouraging someone is to plead with those who are heading towards sin and calling them to repent and come back to Jesus. That's part of how we serve one another and encourage one another to go back to the faith, to return back to the faith that they have in Christ, the grace and mercy that is established through the person and work of Jesus. It also means to exhort and admonish. It means that we're to praise when praise is due and to celebrate when, you, when it is good to celebrate and offer correction when needed. But then lastly, this word encourage means to comfort and console. To comfort and console. Are there people around you that need comfort right now? Are there people in your life that need to be consoled because they're grieving? I boil comfort and console down to this. Be your brother's keeper. And weep with those who weep. 
there are times to, to, to do that, and it's good, and it's encouraging. And how often are we to do this? Well, Scripture keeps saying, all the more, all the more as the day of Jesus' return draws near. And as the day of Jesus' returns draws near, we should be more committed to living the life of faith we have in Christ as God's people. We should be more committed to pointing to the supremacy of Christ in our salvation and the sacrifice he made, the once-for-all sacrifice that he made over any of man's attempts to earn their own salvation or any sacrificial system that would say, if we do this, then God will love us. The only thing we can do is put our faith in Jesus Christ. We should be desiring all the more the gathering together, the building up of one another, the equipping of the saints to the proclamation of the gospel and the mission of making disciples. Because if we live like we have the faith that we say we have and that is described in Hebrews chapter 10, man, we could change some things. We can be an encouragement to some people. And we ourselves can be more humbled and loving the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Let us pray.